Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening after the heat of the week and some beautiful rain and cooler conditions today. Aren't we loving it, John Lamb? We certainly are, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And I think on behalf of the garden plants, I say it is a very good morning because following the heat, as you say, welcome rain. Just be aware, though, if you've had 15 millimetres of rain, that's probably only gone down and soaked the top five centimetres of soil. So don't turn the sprinklers off yet. We're going to have a little mini masterclass on begonias, cane begonias in particular. They're one of the few plants that will give you brilliant colour in full shade. And Val Hendy will be our masterclass teacher and she'll join us very, very shortly. Got any questions on begonias? Mm. Make sure that you come through while Val's there. She'll only be here for a little while. I'll give out the number right now. If you've got some blooming, beautiful begonia questions, uh, call through on 1300 222 891. 891. We will, of course, return to general talkback gardening a little bit later in the program. Yes, and then later in the program, we will actually take a look at elm leaf beetles. Mm. It would appear that they are back and there's large populations and in many gardens, they're causing mayhem. In some gardens, they're not causing problems. Could it be something to do with stress? Michael Pellamountain is our consulting arborist we often talk to on Talkback Gardening. He'll join the program and take a look at the elm leaf uh, beetle problem and give us an update on what's happening and we'll talk a little bit about uh, whether you can uh, prevent or maybe reduce the problem of elm leaf beetles by uh, making sure the trees aren't stressed or perhaps is it uh, something that maybe we say goodbye to elm trees, they're no longer suitable for our gardens. Wow, That's big question. a bit question. radical. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't question. think we're going to go down that road yet, but, but I, I float the idea. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, good. Thank you very much to Craig and Anna at Thompson Beach saying a very happy 15 millimetres in the rain gauge. Uh, Rachel saying 10 millimetres and 14 millimetres at Cudley Creek, says Mary. Some zucchini leaves still scorched under the white shade cloth, but many survived. And uh, we've been talking about the survival techniques and they will be in the Good Gardening newsletter next week. So if you haven't subscribed to John Lamb's Good Gardening newsletter, please do so. And don't forget, anything that you hear on ABC Radio Adelaide is available online up to a week after broadcast. So if you hear anything between 8.30 and 9 on this program that you'd like to hear again, you can go to the, the web uh, online facility. But we also podcast the 9am to 10am segment of the program. So you can find that. Just download the ABC Listen app and you can find the podcast of Talkback Gardening every single week. Yes, and many people do that, particularly after the first Saturday of the month, which, of course, is next week. Darren Ray is our climatologist, and uh, if you miss it, there's a wonderful opportunity of using the ABC's facility or the podcast. Yes, so make sure that you do... um Find that uh, wherever you get your podcast, but I always recommend the ABC Listen app. And don't forget, I've got three of the February ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little bit later in the program. The number that you'll need, though, to ring in right now with a begonia question is one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We enjoy your comments on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Deb, many garden centres sell plenty of plants which are sun lovers, lots of colour, but many people don't have sunny gardens, they have a shady garden. What can you grow in full shade? Begonias could be the answer, and in particular, cane begonias. We're going to talk to Val Hendy in the next few minutes and run a little mini masterclass on cane begonias. Val is a wonderful supporter of the Begonia Society and she's very, very generous with her time in, in providing information about 
begonias, and particularly cane begonias, and she was good enough to give me a little master class during the week. Amazing garden, just an ordinary house block, and there would have been at least a thousand plants in this wow. backyard, <laughs> all happily providing shade, and nearly all of them were, were cane begonias, and probably, apart from about 5% of the plants, received no sunlight at all. But this wonderful colour. So I thought we have to do this on Talkback Gardening. Val Hendy, good morning and welcome to Talkback Gardening. Hello, John. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and, and it was a de- <laughs> de- delightful morning I spent uh, uh, with you and Rod and showing me around. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, I, I put the dumb question Is it possible to grow cane begonias in full shade? Yes, it is, um, and they're better in shade. Um, I grow them under salon, and I think they're best under salon because they get the light, and begonias need light. The more light, the better they are, um, but they definitely need shade. Okay, so it's the light intensity. When I'm talking tomatoes and veggies, I'm usually referring to 50% shade cloth. For begonias, what kind of... Uh, uh, filter do you have? What kind of shade cloth would you su- suggest? Yeah. We use 70% salon, and the higher the salon, I think the better the begonias grow. All right. Is the um, colour important? We use cream because it seems to make it lighter, and we want to keep the light in the garden. So why is it that uh, a begonia will tolerate absolute shady conditions providing the light is bright. If you get it right, what what can you expect? You can expect in summer that you'll have wonderful flowers, you'll have plants that will grow up to about five feet tall um, and they'll have bunches of flowers. They'll just be like grapes and they'll just come out and the colours are amazing and they're just very enjoyable plants to have in your garden. People look at a cane begonia in particular, and they are quite spectacular. As you say, they've got these big canes and beautiful uh, waxy-type flowers on the top of them or sometimes down the side of them as well. Um, How easy would you rate a a cane begonia compared with, say, a petunia or a a vinca? Well, I think they're all easy to grow, but you'll (laughs) get much more out of your begonia than you will the annuals. Your begonia will last years. Um, we've had one in the garden, in the ground, and it's been there for about 40 years, and it flowers non-stop all year. Um, I prune it um, hard, and it just comes back again. When I but arrived, it's a joy to have in the garden. Yes. When I arrived at your property during the week, uh, uh, you've got uh, shade cloth on your front veranda, and that's sufficient to stop. Uh, the sun coming in and there's begonias on the front veranda which are superb, the colour there. But I I then walked down the side of the house with Rudd and yourself and it's a typical on the southern side of most houses (laughs) you've got this space and it's in full shade and it's wide enough to uh, take the wheelbarrow, uh, the the compost in and out and things like that. Uh, But you've got... uh, begonias growing down the side of the house and uh, how would you describe the light intensity there? Well it's poor you don't have a lot of light because there's only a certain time during the day that the sunlight will come through and in summer it gets too hot so we put up a salon cover across this area and that makes it cool and shaded, and the begonias just love it. Absolutely. And when you walk around that area, it is so much cooler than anywhere else in our garden. Yes, and you go from the side of the house to the backyard, and then you see, wow, if you want a definition of wow, I saw it during the week. Uh, just a, It's a, sh- a sloping block, and, and it slopes up upwards and so it's been terraced and with all these wonderful plants growing there but uh, let's but take that's a, a really good thing that you raised because a lot of the time that space down the side of the house is completely useless isn't it oh absolutely People don't plant down yes it. yes guess what's going down the side of my house very very soon begonias <laughs> Okay, so the Achilles heel, I think, for many people, they buy uh, their begonias and uh, uh, watering. 
And begonias, cane begonias, uh, like other begonias, are very, very particular about the amount of water they use. Would I be right in saying that uh, overwatering is probably one of the biggest problems? Yes, you would, with any plants. Um, you need to fill the soil, and if the soil is dry, you water them. Um, most of our plants we have under sprinkler systems, but I keep an eye on the plants, and if they need extra water, they'll be given it. Um, but don't overwater. So how it's, do you know? It's diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> when do you know when to water your plants? Uh, when they're dry. <laughs> they're all on timer systems, um, so I know when they're going to be watered. And I do a round of the garden first thing in the morning and I check out the plants. Um, I guess everybody doesn't do this every day, but this is just how I look after them. That's right, yes. So um, from my point of view, I've learnt to uh, plants in containers, in relatively small containers, is to lift them up. And to me, if you can lift it up and it feels light, uh, it needs watering. But if it feels heavy, I put it back down again. Do you go along with that? Um, I'd be all day lifting the plants if I did that, John. <laughs> okay, so... And, and as they get into bigger plants, they get heavy. And the hanging baskets that we grow, they get very heavy. So I go by the look of the plant. You can see from the leaves if the plant is dry. Feel the leaves. They feel healthy. They're not dry. Um, but just keep an eye on your plants and always make sure that they don't dry out because in summer, with the heat that we've just had, that can be diabolical. Many people would be growing ferns in a shady area and I suppose they're so used to watering those regularly and it doesn't matter, ferns don't really mind if they get a little bit too much water. Whereas on the other hand, a begonia, if you do that, if you overwater, uh, you're probably going to lose the plant or the plant's going to get significant setback. Yes, you know, I don't think normally in the garden you'll lose a lot of your begonias because overwatering isn't a problem as long as you keep an eye on them. The size of the um, pot, could we take a look at that? People look at a cane begonia and they might have, you know, a metre and a so of, of, of canes on top and they think, okay, it's a big plant, it must have a big container. Uh, could you tell me why that's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> the size of the container is really governed by the plant. And when we get windy conditions and the canes may be blown over, then I take them out and put them into a larger container because if it has a heavier ball of soil at the base, it's less likely to blow over. And in the area we live in at Seaview Downs, it can be very windy at night time. So this is a constant problem that the first walk around the garden in the morning, I pick up anything that's blown over. But you can keep a fairly good eye on it, and it's good. Yes, my observation is uh, often if in, in a you've got a small plant in a in a big container, the area around the plant's roots becomes so wet, and that sort of uh, tends to result in overwatering. Um, my solution, uh, for what it's worth, and I, I value your comment, is if I've got a small plant in a small container, I've got a, a plant in a small container, I actually bury that inside another larger container which just has got uh, um, potting mix or whatever it is. And so uh, you've got one, a small pot inside a bigger pot, but at least they don't fall over. Well, that's a big help, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but only move your plant on gradually. You know, don't move your cane begonia into a big pot just because you think it's going to grow tall. Just go up one size at a time and be patient with it. And it will just give you great benefit. You'll love it. Val Hendy is our special guest. Begonia Society champion is the name that you've given, uh, John, which is lovely. Uh, getting some uh, texts in relation to begonias. But if you've got a question for Val, we've only got it for a short period of time. So call through now if you have a begonia question on 1300 991. Jane says, I have huge cane begonias in my garden, some planted under the shade of my buddleias across the back fence and many under my pergola, hard covered, not shade cloth, and they grow amazing. 
magnificent flowers for months. And Mandy in Collinswood, around the corner, says, I have two beautiful cane begonias, one a pretty creamy white flower from a friend's mother in the same pot for at least 20 to 30 years, about five feet tall, and the other a red one from a cutting from a friend, and it's nearly as big. Pretty spotted leaves too. Recently was in the Tasmanian Botanical Gardens, and they have a full begonia house. So many colours. Um, and this question for you, Val, do cane begonias die back in winter? They can lose some leaves in winter. They don't really like winter and they're dormant in the winter period. Um, and I think it's just their rest time for the year. And it's when I go away on holidays I can leave them. But don't lose any sleep over it because come spring you prune them and then they bounce back into life and the leaves all come back and then after that the flowers appear. Okay, so, so it's just, just, just a just, cycle. Just... Just run through the, the life cycle. As I say, during winter, they're quiescent, they sit there. Uh, just run through uh, what happens in terms of the growth, uh, when they flower and when they stop flowering and when they die back again. Yes, well, from early spring, they'll start putting on the leaves and you make sure that you fertilise them so that it's going to give them food to carry them forward. Any plant that flowers a lot needs food. Um, and when it gets to about Christmas time, that's when they start. But it's hard to um, cast them all in one because they're not. They're all different and they flower at different times. And once they start flowering, they'll flower now until about April, to the end of April. And then they'll start to drop their flowers off and they'll go into a more dormant stage. But they'll remain green mostly. Um, last winter was terribly cold and wet and we lost a lot of leaves from our canes but I think they bounced back even better when spring came. Let's talk about encouraging the cane begonias to flower and maybe I again uh, use my garden as an example. I have got a, some cane begonias and there's three great big tall canes and they kept on growing. They're two metres tall <laughs> and eventually they <laughs> flowered right at the very top but <laughs> that's not where I wanted the flowers. So you've got your canes and uh, the, the plant and sending up canes. How can you stay stop growing tall and start flowering? Yeah, it's all up to you. You control it. And especially with cane begonias, they'll grow very tall and then you'll find that there's not so many leaves on the lower section of the plant. So first of all, you work out the height that you want to cut it to. And I would cut them down to about three feet tall. Um, and I would make sure that where I cut just below, there is a growth bud there so that the next lot of leaves will come out from there. Um, and I would go over the whole begonia at that level and trim off the tall pieces. Now, those tall pieces you can use to propagate from. Um, the top section is the ideal bit to propagate from. And you go down the stem and you look for the growth buds. And you pick out where the growth buds are and you cut beneath the growth bud. You, with canes, some of them are well apart so you're not going to get a lot of growth buds but try to get two or three if you can so that when you put your cuttings into soil to grow them you put these growth buds underneath the soil it will grow from there it will send up new shoots and it will grow from the top sections now the middle part of that cane that you've cut off is useless that goes in the bin because there's no growth at the top of it and it's just an empty piece so don't bother to try and propagate from that. Use the top section only. Okay, so uh, it's important that you take a look at the canes and you'll see those little rings around there, the little growth rings, and that's where Val is mm. saying if you can see a little growth, it's like a little bud, and if you see that there, uh, you know that it's going to flower uh, or it's got the potential to flower. Uh, Val, just come back to... The, I brought down a, a, one of my plants, and it wasn't the nicest of plants, but uh, it, I said, I want to stop it from growing too tall, and I gave it to you, and you took the tip out. Tell us what's going on there. Cutting the tips out will encourage the plant to become more bushy, so it will encourage the growth lower down on that plant to grow more, and it will discourage the plant from growing taller. It won't grow taller from where you've taken the tip off but it will grow on the sides and you want a bushier plant that's more attractive and that's the reason you do it. So instead of having one great big bunch of flowers at the top, you can have all these little side growths 
and uh, they That's all have right. flowers on them eventually, and you've got a spectacular bush. Mm. Yes, and you'll notice on the stem of the begonia, where it flowers, it won't have that growth bud. And so you just have to look for the growth bud and ignore those pieces where there's no growth buds because it will never grow from where there's no growth buds on it. Val Hendy, our special guest, Begonia Society champion. If you've got a question, we've only got it for a few minutes. Call in now, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We'll come to them next. This is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Our special guest is Val Hendy from the Begonia Society. Christine has called through. Have you got floppy begonias, Christine? <laughs> yes. Uh, the canes have grown well over two metres tall. I'm listening to Val talk. I've probably um, found the information, but I'm just wondering whether I needed to stake them, but she said to cut them off, so maybe that's what I need to be doing. Do stake them. Um, anything that needs staking, I stake because you improve the appearance of your begonia protector and you're less likely to have the canes break off in the wind. Um, but you sounds like you need to give it a good prune. Right. Yes, it's in a pot in like a um, shade house situation. So it's growing really well and flowering, but yeah. um, very floppy. Yeah. So definitely so, get some tall stakes and at this stage, if you want to just enjoy the plant, put the stakes in, try and make them look unobtrusive and just um, support the boughs that need support. Christine, if there's any uh, help, I took uh, a number of mylic begonias down and there was one which was quite clop, uh, uh, floppy and uh, Val got it and uh, uh, there are sort of a number of little small canes, pretty weak, and so she cut it back and then she put... Uh, four little uh, little uh, stems, or what are we calling uh, stakes? Stakes, yeah, that's what the word I'm trying to say. Uh, tied up there, and then uh, uh, the area, the little pieces she chopped off, she made into cuttings, and so this one little floppy plant is now looking great because it's been staked. But also, there's eight little cuttings. <laughs> <laughs> She's put four cuttings in a small container. And uh, just take on that one, Val. So I've got four little cuttings in, in a small container, probably about four centimetres across. Um, what do I do with those? Uh, do I put them a plastic bag over them or where do I keep them? To, <laughs> so that you, you don't want to muzzle them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Just, yeah. just keep them where your begonias are kept. Keep them watered the same as your begonias and just let them at their own time. They'll send down roots and they'll start to grow. They don't need any more encouragement than that. You've given it a good prune. You've you've put in little cuttings that have got growth buds upper and you've made sure the growth buds are below the soil and just sit back and wait. Christine, it sounds like you've got it in hand. You might have a very non-floppy begonia and a few cuttings on the side. Thanks for calling in. Amanda is in Hindmarsh Island. You would like to know when to trim at begonias, Amanda. Yes, that's right. Um, is there a certain time of the year that you need to trim them right back or, or just um, trim them a little bit as you go? Or Yes. Yeah. How, often, with, how often would you Yeah. With cane begonias, we always say prune in early spring. Um, that's an ideal time because they're coming out of dormancy, they haven't got a lot of leaves on them, and before they start to grow again, you've pruned it back and you're ready for the new season and it'll go ahead. But when you've got a garden like I've got and it's full of plants, I can't go around the whole garden and do it all in spring. I, I can't get around there. So I tend to prune all year when I need to. If a plant falls over and it breaks, then I prune it and I make it back into a good shape and it goes on growing. It doesn't seem to make much difference. Is They're there, very resilient plants. Is there a better time to take cuttings? Cuttings mostly in spring is the best time to take them. Okay, there you go. Um, thanks, Amanda, for the call. And Annette in Moana, uh, you want to know if begonias are okay at the beach, Annette? Yes, please. <laughs> we get blasted by ocean winds, pretty salty ocean winds. I was wondering, do begonias like that condition? Well, I don't see many growing on the seafront. Um, I've had inquiries from people that live on the Esplanade and I've suggested that they 
create a courtyard or like we've got down the side of the place where it's sheltered and they'll be able to grow them in pots. But I wouldn't leave them out in the open where they get the salt spray. Salt on begonias is not good. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Annette. Uh, Caroline in Bridgewater Vale asks, are cane begonias available now in nurseries? Not many, no. Unfortunately, there's not many at all. And the only way to get a good collection of begonias is to come to our shows and buy them there. Um, They're old plants and they're just not um, at this time available in nurseries because the nurseries are full of indoor plants. And plants that grow in the sun and very few that grow in the shade. Yeah, I often talk to yeah. the garden centres and if you try to find cane begonias or rex begonias or other begonias, apart from one or two sort of uh, uh, ho-hum kind of lines, uh, there's very little out there. Which brings us a lovely segment to next week there is a, a begonia and fern show. So tell us what we can expect from uh, begonias at next week's show. Oh, you can expect a wonderful display of the best begonias we have. The members grow all year, and when we have our shows, they bring their best plants in, and you'll be able to walk in and be dazzled by the the arrangement and the flowers. And it's, and on the sides, we have the plants for sale, many, many, many plants, all grown by the people of the society and we combine with the Fern Society and they also have many plants for sale and they'll help you with them. We'll answer any questions for you. And to us, it's a fun day. We really promote our begonias to the public. You're focusing this no, next week on cane begonias. Why? Why? Because they're so good at this time <laughs> of the year. <laughs> Uh, 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 people are sort of wondering why am I sort of talking so much about cane begonias. You're in love with them, John. I've <laughs> yeah. never seen you so excited. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would have been a couple of years ago. Uh, it must have been before COVID. Anyway, uh, I, w- I went to the show and I had to sort of uh, join the queue. It was about a queue about 100 yards long. It was a spring show. But I got in there and uh, the ladies behind the counters, you know, they, they, I said, select me five really nice containers, uh, a c- a cane begonias. And I've got them growing and it's a, I, I just was so amazed at the colour, the ease and, and, and the fact that they grow and give you colour in shade. I said, I'm going to start a collection of cane begonias along with my <laughs> coleus and uh, other plants. So uh, it's next Saturday. Where? Next Saturday, yes. And all the people selling the plants will be able to help the public with any questions they have because they're experienced with it, they know about them. So you can ask any questions. We've got a couple of members that I call the gurus of our club that have been in the club for nearly 40 years and they just have all the knowledge. Um, So they're the ones that we direct the harder questions to. (laughs) You've got so much knowledge on begonias, Val, and thank you very much for being so willing to share it with your members, uh, for those who go along to the uh, monthly meetings, and if you want to learn more about begonias, I suspect uh, uh, go along to one of the meetings, and certainly don't miss next week's show. More details next week, and of course, full details in the Good Gardening newsletter. Val Hendy, (laughs) Begonia Society champion, thank you so much for joining us on Talkback Gardening. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye, and I know we'll have you back again. Uh, This texter says, We were given a cane begonias 50 years ago, and they are in two large pots and still very healthy, so they've also got longevity. And Brad says, Cane begonia cuttings strike well in a bucket of water after a few weeks. That's excellent. Well, let's get back into our general talkback gardening calls. If you'd like to call through on 1300 222891, please do that. And don't forget, if you'd like to listen back to that cane begonia section, as I said, the hour of Talkback Gardening from 9 until 10 is podcast every week. So go to the ABC Listen app, just search Talkback Gardening and you can listen back and get all that information from Val Hendy again. Well, let's go to Jenny in Achunga. Now, Jenny, your Cosmos seeds won't flower. I don't even know what Cosmos is. Cosmos, Good morning. A lovely little annual. Most of them are annuals, but tell us the problem. Well, I have a self-sown one from last year, and that one has flared. 
I bought a packet of seeds and sowed the seeds back in about October. They're tall plants, but they've never had a flower on them. And I'm trying to work out why aren't these things flowering. How much sun are they getting? Oh, they get the... Yeah, they get... Well, they're on the northeast side of the prop house. Yes. Um, but they've got a lot of um, calendulas around them as well. And they're flowering sort of, okay? Yeah, they're flowering okay, and a dahlia is flowering, and, yeah, other things are working all right. All right, and the fact that you've had your other uh, cosmos that you started with, they've flowered in that area, so presumably there isn't... Oh, and they're sun lovers. They really are sun lovers. Soak it up. Mm, and, no, they're uh, getting plenty of sun. Yes. Um, so the, the, you've got healthy plants? Well, they're healthy, yeah. They're tall, and they've got a lot of green foliage on them, but there's no sign of a, a bud. Or a flower, yeah. I, I think it's probably, you, you might be giving them very good conditions and uh, they go through a cycle where they've got to grow and then they stop growing, slow down, and then they start producing uh, flowers and uh, you get your display. Uh, maybe you're just going to be in for a late display there, Jenny. Okay, okay. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's a similar story to the, the, the tomatoes and the veggies mm. that are sort of, uh, they were slow to grow, slow to form a bush, and, and then slow to sort of produce their uh, fruits. And I think it's, it's the same thing, and probably uh, providing we get reasonable autumn, and I'll be interested in what to hear what Darren Ray's got to say next week. But assuming we get that Indian summer, I think mm. you might find you've got a glorious display of cosmos uh, late in the season. And if we don't get uh, uh, early frost, uh, I think yeah. it's something you might be able to enjoy. Thank you. And I've just measured the rain, and we've had 16 mils overnight. 16 mils. Well, mul multiply by that by, by three. Uh, so that's about 30, that's about three and a half, three and a half centimetres it'll go into the soil. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised <laughs> yeah. to see just how much there was in the gate. Yeah, that's OK, right. but go down, get get a trowel and have a look and see how far it's gone into the soil. People get excited when we have a good rain, and it's the first good rain we've had, uh, I think it's, or it's the second good rain we've had this summer, um, and uh, we're still about 30%, uh, 50% short of our average summer rainfall. So it's dry, don't turn the sprinklers off yet and put some more mulch on the garden. Yes, mulching is great. Thanks, Jenny, for the call. And people wondering where the Begonia show is on next week. Well, I'll repeat it again. Next weekend, Saturday the 4th, at the Clemsig Community Hall, 242 North East Road. Enter from Wellington Street. It runs from 10 until 3 and there's a small attendance fee. So that's the SA Begonia Society show next week. We'll tell you about it again next week as well. Kayleen has called in from Bellevue Heights. Now, Kayleen, your pumpkin fruit is shriveling. Yes. Um, good morning, John. And um, Yeah, we've got four pumpkin plants in. Uh, they look fantastic. Uh, they flower really well. They get tiny pumpkins and then they shrivel up and die. Isn't what have they done wrong? Isn't it frustrating? You get so excited because they actually start to grow and then they turn <laughs> yellow and it's not fair. It's to do with pollination or poor pollination, I'm afraid. And mm. it may be that you've got lots and lots of female plants and they're all sort of starting to form, but there's been no male plants. Uh, they have disappeared and uh, you don't get the cross-pollination that you need. And mm. uh, it's also the fact that our weather has been rather strange, and when the temperature gets too high, above 32 degrees, the pollen dries out very, very quickly, and so uh, uh, you, you lose there. And also there are other problems uh, in terms of temperatures and things like that. So I, I think it's seasonal. It's probably poor pollination. It may be you've got lots of la very colourful plants next to the pumpkins and the bees don't like pumpkins anyway. They, they, they don't get much uh, terms of pollen and nectar out of them and they prefer other plants. And so <laughs> they'll probably go elsewhere. So there are a number of factors, but it's poor pollination and uh, not much you can do at this stage uh, if you've got uh, b both male and female plants on the same 
same plant or plants, if there are other plants nearby, um, I'd be taking the tip growth out of uh, the long sections where they go to the end of, of the growth on your pumpkins and uh, take the tip growth out and that will encourage more female plants but you need male plants to be able to give you the cross-pollination. Now, my husband said it's too late in the season to get pumpkins, so he wants to rip them out. <laughs> cool. I would be, if it was mine, I would leave them. I reckon I'd be listening to what Darren's got to say next week, and if he says, look, we're in for an Indian summer, I would leave them there because they're still 10 to 12 weeks. That's three months. Mm. There's time for the plants to set. You might end up with smaller fruit, but if you've got lots of fruit there and they're all small, they're all yummy. Thanks, Kayleen, uh, for the call. Appreciate that. Glenn is from Modbury Heights. Now, you've got a lettuce seed question, Glenn. Uh, seedlings question. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning, all. Um, so I had a soil test done a while ago and there's too much salinity and there's uh, too much of some other things I can sort of run into if you want to. Um, but uh, the newsletter sort of says push the lettuce seedlings along with... Um, sort of chemical-based uh, fertilisers get a faster response, but I'm kind of locked into having to go organic because of um, too much potassium, sulphur, calcium, sodium, magnesium and zinc, according to their uh, analysis. Oh, it wouldn't be. Uh, well, uh, you can have... Uh, how do I, where do I start on that one? <laughs> um, you need a good balance of nutrients, and if you get too much of a particular element, then you can run into problems there. And if you are, what you've you got a, a, a garden bed, or is it a, a large container? Where are they growing? Uh, garden, garden beds, in yeah. Garden. rather grow in soil, and I don't like raised gardens because uh, they just dry out too quickly, particularly yes. uh, with the sort of wheat we just had. If there's too much of salt in particular and there are other soluble elements in there that uh, the lettuce don't like, the best thing would be to put the sprinkler on the ground, if you've got access to water, put the sprinkler on there and leave it for, on for about half an hour. What that will yeah. do is wash the salts out of the topsoil. They'll push them down to the uh, subsoil um, and if you've got a, a major salinity problem, that needs to be addressed. But that will give you temporary release. It will push out whatever uh, is causing a damage, and that means you can put your lettuce in and they're surface-rooted, so they shall take off. And then at that stage, uh, there are plenty of uh, good organic fertilisers uh, based on, say, fish. That gives you a little bit of nitrogen and uh, yes. a lot of yes. other things. Yes. That's a very good one. Uh, there's yep. one based on uh, blood and bone. Nitrosol is also a good one. It'll give you reasonable, re quick response. And, and, and It'll uh, get quick response from both of those, huh? Yep. Okay, cheers. Okay, thanks very much, Glenn. I appreciate the call. Well, we do need to talk about elm leaf beetles. We had a phone, uh, not a phone call, an email, in fact, uh, from Brian in Colonel Light Gardens, very concerned at the heritage-listed suburbs uh, elm tr trees and so we thought we'd get Michael Palamountain back to talk elm leaf beetles that is our topic of conversation in just a moment Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide South Australia and Broken Hill Yes a few people have uh, certainly seen the damage that the elm leaf beetle has wrought around our suburbs. And we have got Michael Palamountain, our senior consulting arborist, with us this morning. Good morning, Michael. I'll, good morning, Michael. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. Yes, it's nice to hear your voice there, uh, uh, Michael. And I suppose we go back three years, 2019, the summer. It was so hot and we had nine days over 40 and the elm leaf beetles and their larvae sitting out there on the leaves actually got uh, uh, burnt, destroyed. And for a couple of years, elm leaf beetle was not a problem. Three years on, do we now have a, a new wave of elm leaf beetles and have they fully recovered? recovering not quite to the same former peak levels uh, that we had several years ago uh, but they are recovering and uh, you might recall earlier on in the season we had a chat about this and with the milder conditions in spring with the cooler temperatures and the higher rainfall we anticipate oh, activity hey. this season and that's what we're seeing now okay so uh, yeah that's been an ideal 
season for the build-up of the numbers. Um, is it right across uh, the suburbs and, and, say, in the hills where probably there has been not the, the same wipeout as, uh, as there wa- has been across uh, the Adelaide Plains? Uh, how widespread would you say the problem is? is? Is it possible to say it's a problem here and not there? Well, look, driving around Adelaide, John, I'm seeing quite a bit of variability in the damage uh, in elm trees. Uh, Some areas it's fairly minor and some areas it's becoming quite substantial. And I guess the things I'm seeing uh, is that the worst affected trees are those that uh, haven't been treated for the last two or three years or more or haven't been treated at all. Uh, Those trees with less than ideal growing conditions... um, Although um, uh, the recently treated trees that you know I, I've seen or know that have been treated in the last season or two tend to have less damage, but I think uh, in terms of how widespread it is, John, um, it'd be those areas around Adelaide that are cooler and moister that uh, tend to have um, the numbers increasing a little bit more than some of the warmer, drier areas. But generally across the board, we're seeing it increasing. Elm trees are beautiful. They're very, very picturesque. They're very, very good from a shade point of view. But in the people's gardens, they tend to have to look after themselves. And so they don't get extra water. And if uh, we have a long, dry season, as we're having now, uh, the plants get stressed. Is there a link between trees that are stressed and the amount of damage that is caused to the trees? Yes and no. I mean, the the beetles will attack uh, uh, their preferred elm tree species irrespective of the levels of stress. But it's those trees that have the more optimised growing conditions that uh, will be impacted to a lesser degree. Um, And with any uh, integrated pest management approach, um, uh, some people may choose to use chemicals, but certainly mulching and irrigation form part of that strategy. So where people have the opportunity to improve growing conditions for individual trees with improved mulching and irrigation techniques, then that's certainly going to reduce the impact of the damage by the beetle, but it certainly won't stop the beetles feeding on those trees. If you're going to water your elm trees, how often would you do that during summer and how much water would you apply to a big mature elm tree? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, well-established mature trees that are reasonably well-suited to our local conditions in Adelaide shouldn't necessarily require additional irrigation. However, the elms are not ideally suited to our hot-dry conditions, so some periodic additional irrigation will be beneficial. Now, I would encourage home, uh, uh, home gardeners to maintain their normal irrigation regimes for their Uh, ornamental garden beds but when it comes to the trees I would uh, add in an additional irrigation which is less duration uh, sorry less frequent sorry but more duration so for example I would be saying during the really hot periods like we've just had over the last few days approximately once a week I'd be putting the irrigation system on for two to four hours uh, at a time or more Uh, And it would depend on the delivery system that they have, whether it's spraying or drippers or so on. But certainly a long soaking is what's encouraged. So would you put on, say, a 1,000 litres of water for a decent water? Absolutely. If if you can manage that once a week or once a fortnight during the hot water, that would be a good amount. A cup of coffee a week. Yeah. The, the other area I'd just like to your comments and observations. Uh, there are certain trees which uh, grow and we've grown in the past and they look lovely. But uh, as the temperatures get hotter more often, they don't thrive. And I'll probably the silver birch would be a good example of that. Is the elm tree in likely to, to go the same way as the silver birch? I would say that the future of growing elm trees in Adelaide is under question. Uh, We've had many elms planted across Adelaide as iconic avenues, uh, particularly in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, such as in the uh, South Parklands, in Alexandra Avenue in Rose Park, East Parkway in Colonel Light Gardens and in the Waite Arboretum. 
And these are fantastic avenues, but uh, they've performed well, but they're showing signs of ageing. They're showing signs of climate change and uh, effects of long-term drought, uh, as well as the cumulative damage uh, from elm leaf beetle activity. So I think with the older avenues of trees, um, they're important to look after, to, to maintain character and historic links um, that, we, that are really important to our community. But we have to consider whether planting elms into the future is the way to go with uh, climate change and elm leaf beetle being known threats to our urban forests. Michael Pellamountain, I value very much your observations and your skills and those that have got ears, let them hear to what Michael is saying and the effect of climate change and its potential effect on climate change on plants in the garden is something which will appear quite regularly on Talkback Gardening. But Michael, uh, thank you very much for your contribution this morning. Thanks, John. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Michael. Michael Palamountain, Senior Consulting Arborist, a great uh, friend of Talkback Gardening here at the ABC. And just on the issue of elm leaf beetle, uh, Bruce says, uh, I have a golden elm tree about 30 years old. I've stopped the attacks of elm leaf beetle by spraying with imidacloprid. I always get that yep. wrong. Um, Thank you very much for that, Bruce. And this texter says, uh, I have dropped the ball. Um, sorry, the Adelaide City Council has dropped the ball on elm beetle. 60-year-old trees completely defoliated, zero action, part of the cause, one hour's water per week, no accountability, disgracefully sad. That's the issue that's going to come up. Old trees which are in decline, um, do we continue to try and prop them up? Or is it time to say thank you very much for a century or a half a century of, of wonderful shade and, and, uh, and, and the effect, the cooling effect that they bring, but it's time to phase them out and what do we replace them with? Yes, well, that is the big question. I imagine we're going to ventilate that at some time on Talkback Gardening, so stay tuned. If you haven't won anything from ABC Radio Adelaide in the last month and you would like to get yourself an edition of ABC Gardening Australia magazine, call in now on 1300 222 891. I've got not one, not two, but three magazines to give away today. 1300 991. Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Oh, good morning. Talkback Gardening. John and I are having a good old chat there. Um, Michael is from Oaklands Park now. Michael, you've got a problem with your rhubarb. Yes, I do, Deb. Uh, uh, good morning, John. Um, I've got a couple of rhubarb plants and I've... Um, I, uh, I did have them in the ground and I put them in, in some large pots with a mixture of uh, mushroom, compost and cow manure. Uh, but they, when the leaves get to a certain stage, they just wither and um, they just they stop growing. Then they usually turn yellow. Uh, and I just kept that dose. And I've used um, Charlie Carp in, the, in it and... Uh, and uh, you know, can you give me any indication what I might be doing wrong? Or? Uh, Michael, you're killing it with kindness. You're, no, okay. First of all, uh, let's go back to the Achilles heel of rhubarb is wet feet. And they just won't tolerate wet feet. They might grow a little bit, but uh, once uh, the leaves grow, they need lots and lots of moisture to uh, keep themselves cool. And on a warm or sunny day, they just collapse. First of all, we go back to the soil. You put in, uh, you say, compost and cow manure. Now, all of those things are good, but if you have too much of them, it's like blotting paper. And so it's sucking up the moisture, and when you come along, you water the area. And so those top maybe 10 centimetres, where most of the uh, uh, water-absorbing roots of your rhubarb are, uh, it's just overwet and uh, there's not enough air there. You get the wrong kind of little bacteria and fungi uh, established in that area, and it knocks off the roots, and that just puts your plant under stress. 
um, and then you're saying that you're also putting on the Charlie Carps and things like that. Uh, so you've got half a root system or maybe only a third of a root system left and you're pouring, uh, putting fertiliser on them and they just can't tolerate it. So um, the best thing to do is, if it's possible, um, not yet, but maybe in a few weeks' time if we're getting just mild weather, temperatures in the 20s, dig the plants up, uh, remove most of the outer leaves and replant but into a raised garden bed. Now, you don't say you don't like the, you know, the commercial raised beds, but if you just, your garden is just raised up, so the weather rhubarb is, is probably 10, uh, sorry, 20 or 25 centimetres uh, higher than the rest of the ground and grow your rhubarb in that, um, I think you'll find that that makes a, a much a very significant difference. And if you are using uh, your organic materials, uh, don't put on too much. 15% uh, by volume, 20% maximum by volume to the area that your the plant is growing in is probably a good ratio. Okay, thanks very much for that, John. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. It sounds like you have to be cruel to be kind to rhubarb. <laughs> thanks very much for the call. And congratulations to our magazine winners, Coral in Woodville, Lorraine in Gawler and Louise in Hope Valley. Well done. We'll send those out to you. Just some uh, good news survival stories on the text line, John, um, from the heatwave that we have experienced this week. Kevin says, my garden, including a silver birch, fruit trees, roses, bottle brushes and young grapes looks fi looks fine in full sun with a good watering one hour on the drippers before the heat wave and two half hour waterings during so Kevin's um, garden survived that and Don at Malang says lots of tomatoes this year most people in the district and the community garden have good crops too. Uh, covered tomatoes with hessian and sheets on the two uh, warm days. Extra water survived okay. Nine millimetres of rain in Malang last night. And coming back to begonias, uh, Jackie at West Croydon does exactly what says her mum does exactly what Val Handy did and planted them all down the side of the house that's in shade and they look fabulous. So that's something to keep in mind. If you've got that shady side and you think, well, I can't grow anything here, take Val Hendy. Um, and uh, Megan says, um, uh, but, but can you let listeners know that begonias can be toxic to dogs and cats if they have a nibble? I did not know that. No, I wasn't aware of that either. So, yeah, just be careful. And uh, if the dogs uh, are prone to having a, a nip on things, uh, you can spray the foliage with uh, bitter materials that uh, stop dogs from sort of biting or supposed to, um, but uh, some dogs are <laughs> pretty hard to stop. <laughs> Listen, I think uh, there's a wonderful opportunity for the garden to recover because of the hot weather. Many plants are stressed, and I think simply soaking the soil, water is the elixir that is magic after a heat wave, and make sure the soil goes down, and for most plants, going down 20 to 30 centimetres, even the lawn, 20 centimetres of moisture in the soil but don't overwater otherwise you push out the air and stay away from fertilizers until you see that damaged plants are started to recover at that stage you can put on a fertilizer but in the meantime use a stimulant there are soil stimulants and plant stimulants and they're probably the same thing and there's a big range of them the seaweed products there are those made out of compost a liquid compost and there are those made from other sort of organic materials and they are excellent in stimulating plants back into good health. And I think if you do the combination of good soaking, uh, stimulate the root system, the trees and the, the plants that are affected will certainly respond very, very quickly. And so, here it is. <laughs> the time has gone whoosh again. Until next week, good gardening. <laughs>